The following commentary does not necessarily reflect the views of the staff and management of WBCA or Boston Neighborhood Network. If you would like to express another opinion, you can address your comments to Boston Neighborhood Network, 3025 Washington Street, Boston, Massachusetts, 02119. To arrange a time for your own commentary, you can call WBCA at 617-708-3241, or you can email radio at bnntv.org. All right. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? You are listening to the Racing Combination 102.9. I am your host, Cupid Mike. And um, normally, every once in a while, I try to bring awareness what goes on in Cuba. By now, if you haven't followed me by now, every week, <laughs> it became a bad habit every week or every couple of weeks, I try to bring a guest to the show, help us bring awareness to the community. And I made it a point, you know, to try to bring issue what goes on during the Black Cuban community, not to dismiss our white Cuban brothers, but our Cuban community has been the voice that has been silent. Um, it's been the unheard on and it's been ignored, you know, and I think by now we've been told it's by design. And today, today I have a guest and I've been a fan of this man's work now for a couple of years now. Um, I follow him since 2020. Um, my mom told me about this man's work. Um, I've been trying to hunt him down for like the last year and a half to see if we could do my podcast, but he has no social media. It like became a ghost. And through, you know, through the grace of the universe, I want to thank my sister Grace for making this happen because I was like, I have to find this man and have him on my show because he has so much gems, so much advice. And it's like his brain is like so far from the norm, just from the work I've been watching him online. And just from everything he does to um to the state of Florida, um you could catch him, um you do America TV right America America TV you've been a guest, yeah. And then my show and Focus Ciudadano every night for, uh, Monday through Friday. Yes, yeah, Monday through Fridays. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to bring to you Professor Andres Albuquerque. How you doing, sir? How you doing? Thank you for the opportunity. Oh, yes. No, the pleasure is all mine. As you can see, like, usually when I come to the show, I usually wear my hat backwards and get very hip hop now, but I had to come with a blaze to show respect. So <laughs> show respect <laughs> to the show. <laughs> I have to come like an adult now. <laughs> and I got a haircut now, so I don't, I don't have to put my hat inside. Oh, my God. That's a good question. <laughs> but, yes, but um, welcome. Um, please um, give us a brief introduction on yourself. Tell my audience from Massachusetts where you're originally from, which I know, but can you give us a brief intro? Well, I was born in Havana, Cuba, which is what mm -hmm. every, every Cuban, as you know, every Cuban says they were born in Havana, but, but they were not. Uh, and then when they say, I was born in Havana, the, the question among the Cubans is, which floor? In <laughs> 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 que piso? Because yeah. everybody says, but anyway, I'm a Havana born, but a Cuban proud. I love the entire island. I happen to be a tour guide at a certain point in my life. So I know the island through and through the keys around the island. And I've come to love that uh, piece of land uh, like I love my own life. So I was born to a cube, to a, 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 a mixed Cuban communist family. And when I say communist, I mean before Castro. Castro oh. would be considered a neo-communist. But communists were in Cuba since the early 20th. I would say that right after the, uh, the advent of the um, October Revolution and all of that, um, some um, migrants from Poland and other countries um, came to Cuba to settle. It was part of the offensive 
especially launched by Stalin after Lenin's death. Not that Lenin was any better than Stalin, by the way, but I'm just I'm just being objective and honest here. So it was an offensive where they tried to uh, to create or to uh, monitor um, revolutionary situations all over the country. Because some people say, oh, okay, so the communists, how could the communists know that Cuba would bring a Fidel Castro 50 years later? They didn't know. They sent their agents all over the place. Mexico City was full. It was effervescent with um, Russian spies. So when they saw that Cuba was the first one in, they just concentrated on it. But then again, Castro was not a communist at first. He is a son of um, not so wealthy as the American academia would put it, but the family was rich. They own a farm in Bidang. That's why, that's why so many Cubans call Fidel Castro the hyena from Biran, La Hiena de Biran, because Biran is the, uh, his, his native town. So my family was communist before Castro ever was. And it is important to point out that black Cubans never, and I repeat that word, never like Castro's apocalyptic uh, verbiage and rhetoric. That patria o muerte, uh, homeland or death, come on, man. Los negros cubanos, uh, black Cubans, were more, much more uh, hedonistic than that. And I'm not labeling it race. I'm telling you what the conjecture made of us. So the mixture between the Spanish, Latin, that is hedonism at its best, with the Africans that are, that are not as bitter as we might think and are very happy people despite all the reversals and, and, and being against the wind so many times, um, that mixture brought about uh, a people that was ready to fight and we proved it in the independence war when we carried the burden of the war against Spain for independence, but also believed that there was something better at the end of the tunnel, that you didn't have to die, that the alternative was not death, that the alternative was happiness, that the alternative was pachanga, which is a Cuban word for, you know what? chilling out, being happy, enjoying, moving your hips and stuff, and, and, and taking it easy after a day's work. That is basically what uh, the Cuban, uh, the, the black Cubans, of course, there were many exceptions, were about. So it should come as no surprise that we didn't like Castro. So where do they basically gravitate around? Black Cubans gravitated mainly around the Communist Party, Yes, because they promise integration, racial equality, just like they're doing here in America now, by the way. Mm -hmm. So it, 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 we were lured into that and we were lured into Batista because Batista was mixed race. He was not black. He was mixed race with um, Cuban uh, Aboriginal people, the Indios, as we call it, Indians. But anyway, he was mixed race and he paid the price for it. Batista could not enter the Havana Jack Club, even though he was a president. Keep wow. that in mind. Keep that wow. in mind. It's not that Batista had everything here. Actually, one of the reasons why Fidel was catapulted to power is because they wanted to get rid of that. That's what they said. Cualquier cosa con tal de salir del negro. Anything as long as we get.
So the revolution since the outset was tainted by racism. Blacks were not in mass following Castro. It's not true. Two or three followed and they were here, that's fine. But it's not the bulk of the black Cuban community. So when Castro takes power, my family, of course, just jumped at the chance. The orientation for, from Moscow was, we're going to get that guard. We're going to influence that guy. We're going to prep him up. We're going to catapult it to power. And most of his um, entourage and uh, security, what, we, what you would call in America the Secret Service, was led and made by all communists. They were communists. People don't know that. Wow. So first and foremost, the Cuban Revolution was not as genuine and, and as Latin America as we think. Then my family, like I said, participated in, uh, in all the revolutionary tasks, as I call it. Uh, I myself wanted to be a member of the Communist Party. I was never accepted into the Communist League, because, which is the youth section of it because they said that I have petty bourgeois vices and prejudices. God knows, God knows what that means. Probably, wow. because I, probably because I like to have manicure, pedicure. I don't know. Hey, you're, you're supposed like to be you like to be a distinguished gentleman. <laughs> yeah, you're supposed to be Spartan, austere. You, you're supposed to starve. You're supposed to be a communist. You're a non-person. You don't have any criteria. It's all what the party says, and you know how, how that goes. So even though I fervently wanted to be a communist, I always had criticism and what I call positive and constructive criticism towards all the vices that I thought the revolution had inherited because the revolutions are made by, by people, by men, and we're full of specs and mistakes and shortcomings and so I saw myself as a positive communist with an objective view until sooner or later there had to be a clash and I got purged. So I spent four years after I had been a tour guide, after I had been an interpreter uh, of confidence for the government and had translated for people like the widow of Salvador Allende, the former president of uh, Chile, I had trans. I was part of a translators when Jesse Jackson was in Cuba, when Robert Redford was in Cuba, when Marielle Hemingway was in Cuba, uh, when several senators were there. I uh, interpreted for George Wallace's daughter, Be Betty Wallace. Mm -hmm. So I was pretty much right there until I wasn't anymore. You never know what the turning point is. But it really hurt when I saw my friends being lambasted, being attacked, being bullied, simply because they wanted to leave the country during the Marielle Bothe, and they wanted a better life. I still was a communist then, and all I said was, not everybody has to be as Spartan and austere as we all are. People have the right to feel weak, to show weakness, and look for what they think is going to be better. Instead of bullying them, we should keep their keys to the houses and say, and say, whenever you feel like you want to come back to your country, this is your house. We're going to keep it for you. You're one of us. We don't hate, we don't hate you. You're not the enemy. 
needless to say, that suggestion was welcomed by huge repression. And I, I almost had to retract myself about that. You know how things are. Yeah. So uh, I left Cuba finally after four years in which I uh, swept the streets, uh, worked as, as um, worked in the different uh community services like waste management and stuff like that and I'm not I'm not ashamed of having to do that but a person that comes from high up and goes so low in the chain of the Cuban society that's not normal you're no, supposed to improve not not to go backwards and let alone because you think different slightly different from the other then of course I had to leave Cuba four years after four years of being a non-person, and I went to Europe. I went to Italy. I married for the second time with an Italian citizen. I started living in the area close to Venice. By the way, I lived next door to an American base in Vicenza. Mm. <laughs> uh, mm. It was all coincidental. And uh, I started living in the West. So my eyes opened further. And I realized that... Uh, things were not as they told me in Cuba, and I started radicalizing. Actually, the first time that I was aware of the beauty of my race was when I went to the gym in Italy, and I noticed that everybody was looking at me. In Cuba, even though I had very good friends, I have to make it a point here, and I'm sorry if I go a little bit off way, but I meant the American uh, public opinion should know that racism existed in Cuba way before Castro, of course, especially after Castro, but it was never like here. It was not institutional. You, you could mm. not find char crosses in your, in your backyard. You were not supposed to, to travel in the back of the bus. There were, no, there were no restaurants and water fountains for blacks or whites. It was actually... It was so subtle that it was worse to fight against it. Because when things are so subtle and you say there's racism here, the other one looks at you and says, what the hell are you eating on my table, man? What racism are we talking about? This is not mm. like America. Yes, it is, it is not, definitely not. Yeah. But black people took the burden and the brunt of the struggle for independence against Spain in the 19th century and when everything was normalized, quote unquote, we were the ones that swept the streets. We were the ones that got the worst jobs and the best jobs were for white people. So, yeah. nos dieron la mala. I mean, they ripped us off, no doubt. And when we tried to protest, they killed more than 3,000 blacks in La Guerra de los Negros in the uh, Black Cubans War of 1912. More than 3,000. Uh, was that war a smart move or not? I have my doubts. But what I'm trying to say is, we even tried to forcibly claim our rights and we were butchered. So there was racism in Cuba. Again, not as obvious, not as evident, not as palpable, as it was in America. It was not part of a law. It was basically a way of life. It was basically in, intrinsic in the jokes, in the, in the lore of the country, 
in the vernacular uh, uh, culture, uh, it was something like that. Uh, phrases like, uh, el negro si no la hace a la entrada, la hace a la salida. Black Cubans, uh, yeah. sooner or later, mess it up. That's basically what it said. Tenía yeah. que ser negro. What can you expect? It had to be a black person. Yeah. Um, la mona, aunque se vista de seda, sigue siendo mona. The monkey, of course, they always compare to monkeys, apes, and, and the likes. Monkey, even if dressed in silk, remains a monkey. I mean, stuff like that. Yeah. But, it, but again, it was not like in America. It, if you ask me, my personal experience, my best friends are white. And they have dispensed me a genuine, sincere friendship that uh, was proved in all my worst moments. So if you ask me personally, but it's not about me, it's about an entire segment of the Cuban population. And that's what we have to talk about. Uh, so that's in a nutshell that then I started working in the travel industry again. I traveled, I lived in the Dominican Republic, in Mexico, um, traveled to Jamaica so I could see other realities and other angles of the racial problem from different angles in every country is different. And uh, finally, I decided that it was time to, um, to come home. So I came to America. I'm a <laughs> citizen and I, and I, again, I'm very active in the community from the perspective of the America that I love, the America that I want. I don't want to change America. I want to improve it. I don't, I, I, I'm happy to study the history I'm happy to revisit history, but I hate to rewrite history because that is dishonest. So that's basically, uh, in a nutshell, my bio, quote unquote. Oh, one, one, one hell of an introduction. One hell of an introduction. And I'm, right now, I'm just learning so many things right now. Like, I, I just recently listened to a, a podcast called The Dictators. And they have an episode basically on all the dictators. So now we're in the segment. They talked about Fidel. And um, I they were telling they was talking about him in his like college years. And you mentioned that Cuba had a communist ideology before Castro, but I guess when he took over, it got pumped up even bigger because now they have somebody that thought like him. So from what I got from the podcast, it's like, okay, if he was able to do that, and he already know that Cuba has a very like a like as you said, a subtle racist, um, he could take that for his advantage to get rid of Batista. So that was very interesting that they had these things. But um, I guess what he did was able to get the youth. Like, because usually people that have that kind of ideology with the socialist communist, they come from college and they come from you know the half knots. And it's very it's very interesting because he was not a half knot. His family was very well off. His family was well off. If I recall, I think his dad took him to private schools and, you know, got That's him with the bougie, the bougie people. So he, he was kind of set up, but he used that. He, he kind of like separated himself for that and went after the half knots and try to act like, hey, I'm one of you guys. I'm part of the people. Let me prove to you that I could be one of that. And at the end, we all saw what happened. But that, that, that's very, very interesting. And you just mentioned that the War of 1912, where I myself knew nothing about this. I guess I got to pick up a book or talk to my mom about that story because I knew nothing about that. But this is why I have in the show because today I'm going to get a teaching, a professor teaching the students. So I'm all here for it. Greatly appreciated. So what was the dynamic coming to the States? Because here's the reason I have to ask, because I, I went to the protests in Washington 
And my mom told me this story. But then when I went to the protest in Washington, I came a lot of like black Cubans, like elderly Cubans. And it was so funny because prior to me going there, one of the things that my mom's asking, like, okay, where's our people at? And it was, on. I remember clear as day, it was a Sunday and it was like the most black Cubans I've seen since I lived in New Jersey. It was, we were out there. And I came across a lot of people from different generations. And the one thing that my mom told me was um, Cuba, what they did to particularly black neighborhoods was like the indoctrination. So when you hear a lot of people that don't understand us, they say, well, there's a lot of white Cubans to, that come to, to America. So there's not too many black Cubans. So they must love the system or America's like racist. or they won't accept us. Not knowing if you're Cuban, you automatically could come over here with the, with the special law they gave us. So one of the things that they told us, they were like, look, I wanted to come, but they, the, the, the Cuban system like indoctrinated us so bad. And they, everybody told me the same thing. Every time they looked at America and they saw like the way they, the black Americans were being treated, they saw, you know, the Ku Klux Klan, they saw the church bombings, they saw the fire hose when people were protesting, you can't sit in the back of the bus, you know, um, the dogs going after the kids. So I guess from a distance, they're like, okay, why would I want to go there? I'll just deal with this oppression. And then if it gets really, really bad, I'll probably might consider it. And for years, for years, you know, that was the system that they could pump into our community. And um, my mom will tell you the story. And she told me the story and I started laughing. When my mom came in during the Muriel boat ride, um, she was scared to go to certain neighborhoods because they thought it's going to be the fire hole, the fire. They still have that mentality like it was 1965. So luckily we came across people that were helping us. Like They haven't done it in years. Like we've been progressing. And, you know, like, this is the first time they've seen color TVs. So the Cubans that I met in Washington was, like, I guess frustrated because they so well helped us to just keep us in fear to not come over here. And they just kept us in a, in a bottle. So when you came to the States, now that you travel all over the world, what was the dynamics that you had, you know, being Black in, in, in America as opposed to being Black in Cuba? I, they already, I already knew that the, the racist uh, fallacy was one of the tools that Castro used to lure black people and, and make them stay. I have to be very honest with you, and I always say this in my show, much as I vindicate or try to vindicate our right to a fair deal, much as I denounce the racist uh, state of things that existed in Cuba, way before 1959, and especially after 1959, I must honestly say that even though we did not like Castro's apocalyptic approach, we were seduced, lured, infatuated by the rhetoric of, I have solved the problem. Now there's no racism. You can go into any social club and you will be welcome. So many of us chose to dress as milicianos, which is the popular militia, to call it somehow, and take over the properties of a white brethren. This must be admitted with courage. Otherwise, history will always be incomplete. It, mind you, it was not a black movement of revenge. Mm -hmm. Castro manipulated us in such a way that we either fell from the trap or some of us we, who had enough knowledge and culture 
let it go because the trap was easier than facing reality and fighting against it. So, wow. yes, racism was the main thing for, for many years, up to 59, and, and especially beyond that. But there was a moment when we, the Black Cubans, failed our white brethren and, and said, you know what? I'm going to be a miliciano. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to be part of the process. A process that we didn't support since day one. We were sucked into it, and we let ourselves be sucked. Some people knowingly, some of us unknowingly, but we did. That is what cost, together with the standards of living, there was still racism in Cuba. So obviously, the highest standard of living was for the whites, whatever that may mean in Cuba. As you and I know, there's no whites in Cuba anyway. But yeah, of course, of course, of course. Let's 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 conventionally call it white. Yeah. So the white had the privilege economically, even though there was a growing uh, and pungent uh, black middle class that had the control of all things uh, vocational, like making furniture, plumbers, uh, air conditioning. That was already something that we were getting into. And it was small private property. So the black people in Cuba were not starving. We're not in a ghetto. They, some of us had our own thing, our own private property. Of course, it was not like the white Cubans. There was much to catch up with, but it was not as they constantly claim it was. It's not true. So we opted to stay. Of course, very few blacks came over in the first wave of migrants. So when the time came for Cubans to ask their relatives and, 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 and pull their relatives out of there, there were very few Blacks who could do that with their families. So we Blacks remained in Cuba and once again were the ones that took the brunt of the economic hardships and, every, and everything. I'm not saying that we deserved it because we dress as miliciano. I'm not gonna get up to that point. I'm not gonna get that far. I'm not gonna say it's karma. That would be laughing about an, an entire segment of people. I guess it was basically ignorance. It was basically lack of civic knowledge, of civism, mm -hmm. of awareness of what is best for your group for your race segment, for your social class, whatever you want to call it, at a certain point, and we thought as individuals instead of thinking of black people. Have we given it a second thought? We would have said, we never liked this guy. Why do we have to stay on him? Let's get the hell out of here. And the situation would be different. Of course, after that, there were some other waves, and more and more black people got the solution and left the island in what it may shift uh, raft mm, uh, being Whatever. claimed by people. Car, they put the part of a boat. Defecting boat. in a third country, whatever it was. But um, it's a complex phenomenon. I mean, if you're going to talk about Blacks in Cuba, it is so complex. Again, racism is so subtle that it's hard to tell the difference between yes and no between guilty and not guilty. It, it is a complex phenomenon. And so many Cuban whites 
are scared are scared of facing the truth. And when you start doing a show about race and all, okay, we always talking about racism. I mean, yeah, it is one of the issues, but there's so many issues. No, 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 it is the issue, especially because if you live in America, you had a spring and a summer that was far from law. It was a spring and a summer when my color was used as cannon rudders to burn down properties of middle class and low income people to burn down the country and to deconstruct the American dream and turn it into an American nightmare. So yes, race is important and we have to grab the initiative from the hands of the extreme left because it's damaging America. And you know what is especially damaging the black people? Because no matter how many people you see in Hollywood, no matter how many black you see rapping, if you go to little uh, to um, Liberty City, uh, uh, Brownsville here in Miami, which are the black neighborhood, mm-hmm. Jamal and Takisha's son still doesn't have internet. Still has only a single parent. Still Oof. is taken care by the grandmother who was a junkie back on the day and found God in the process. And now he's <laughs> regenerating, taking care of, of the grandson that is that is being educated without a father, or probably without a father and without a mother, and with an abortion clinic in the corner to remind us that we should remain in the 19% and no higher. So that that is the truth. I'm I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm glad you mentioned that because um when I, I lived in I live in Massachusetts and they try to be as quote unquote progressive as they can. So I um I got caught up with the Black Lives Matter thing in the beginning because, you know, just because of my experience living in America, I've been in bad situation with cops where they've been a little bit disrespectful of the case with me. So I got it. It wasn't until, you know, this is why when they keep now they I've been labeled as an activist, which is like whatever. But um if you're gonna call me an activist, then I guess I'm gonna have to start in 2016. My activism started in 2016, right when Fidel Castro died. And I'm gonna tell you why. Um there was already weird things that Black Matter was doing that I was not liking, and I was already like ahead of the curve, but nobody was listening to me because it was like the angry man in the soapbox. It's like, look, these people are this, but they didn't like it. So it's one of those things when you admire something and you believe something, you find anything to do to defend it. So you see them do something bad. So they'll say something like, it's not about the messenger. It's about the message. Well, let's think about the good instead of the bad. Let's think of like, you know, the upside instead of the downside. Like, they'll do everything to like, you know, realize that this, this, this organization is not for them. And by the time they realize it's not for them, it's already too late. They already escaped with $90, $90 million. They already got what they wanted and they escaped with the plug. So um, it started with them. And then once I went to their website and they had like this big home homage to like Fidel Castro and he was like a great ally to black people and what it came to be. I was already done. Um, unfortunately, with us, it took us like five years later once they did that quote when they, um, you know, say what they did about, you know, the embargo and Castro and whatever the case may be. But I saw you. I saw you in 2020 and you were probably like the first person that called it out. Like I felt the same way. So you called it out the way I saw it. So what was the signs that you thought that this organization was full of and you'd be like, you know what, you people should not support this. Maybe you could explain it better than I could because when I did it, it wasn't, it was like one year about the other. Uh, first of all, the very name. 
the very name is divisive. The very name Black Lives Matter. Okay, Martin Luther King, and mark my words, in two or three years, Martin Luther King statues and monuments will be put down. They cannot wait to take Dr. King away from the narrative because it goes against everything that BLM uh, practices and preaches. So they're just waiting for some kind of new hero to dethrone MLK. Mark my words, this is the first time in your shows you record this. So when it happens, you say, I said it. <laughs> now, mind you, mind you, we're doing it. We're saying this on Black History Month and it's President's Day. So if you're saying that and this happens to you, I'm going to save this and cut it. I swear to God, but save this and cut it yeah. and make yeah. sure you were the first one that said it. They don't like Dr. King. They play with a name because it's the only name they have that reaches across the aisle. But if you remember, Martin Luther King, Dr. King, was not for a revenge of black people this, of black people that. What he wanted was coexistence, brotherhood, uh, living together, everybody seated at the same table rather than, no, 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 Black Lives Matter. Stevie Wonder put it like no one else, and he was almost, uh, and he was almost booed. He said, you can't say that Black Lives Matter, and then you have the killing of Black on Blacks on Chicago and other cities. So the very name of the organization, it should have been more inclusive. Anyway, apart from that, the practices. If you're violent, if you burn down, have you heard of Black Lives Matter burning uh, somebody's house in one of those zip codes, like Martha's Vineyard or any of the rich zip codes? Of course not. What did they burn? What did they destroy? Our the own people's yeah, little business, our bodegas. Hmm. So it is, like I said, Black Lives Matter is an organization quarterbacked by very wide hands, financed by very green money, and aiming at very red objectives. There's nothing white, black in this equation. So I can't trust it. The language was so abrasive, was so violent. I mean, why do you have to burn anything if you want to make a point? Why don't you Call on everybody to join hands. Remember, when uh, Floyd was killed, and yes, he was a criminal, he was okay, but he shouldn't ever die like that. Not even being Laden should have been killed like that. So mm -hmm. let's make two different points here. He's no hero, he's no martyr, but what they did to him was murder. And, and I hope they rot in prison, or they get the electric chair, or whatever it is they can do. But, but using George Floyd and having a mausoleum built with him when Jamiel uh, Shaw, the third straight A student of college, church, an American football star was killed by an illegal immigrant two blocks away from his house. And he said, don't shoot. And this is how he died is no hero, no mausoleum for Jamie Show the third. 
an example of an American citizen, actually the American dream, dream, a black youth taking full opportunity, taking full advantage of the potential that this country can offer to everyone. So he's not a hero and a thought who, who traded uh, counterfeit money and who put a gun to somebody's womb, to a lady's womb, pregnant lady's womb, is a hero. Something's got to be rotten with these people. And then, of course, life proved me right when uh, um, Patrice Collor and the other one were caught red-handed buying wealthy mansions in affluent neighborhoods where white people live away from the black <laughs> brethren they so much claim to be defending. Hypocritical. I knew since day one, nothing that tries to divide America is good. Dr. King died for trying to unite America. That is the way, of course, things change. History evolved. Probably some of the teaching of Martin Luther King must be updated, adapted to this new conjuncture. I'm fine with that. But you can't run away from his basic teaching. No. Because otherwise it's just revenge. And we don't, you know what happens when you, uh, when you embark in revenge? It's like a pendulum. It goes this way. And the farther that way it goes, the farther this way you will go. So don't be surprised, my brother, if 20 years from now, we are the scapegoat, we black people are the scapegoat of this society because we contributed to an attempt to deface and destroy America. So my black brothers have to say, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. I'm going to choose what is convenient for me. What's in it for me? And when I say for me, I don't mean for you as an individual, but for me as a group, as an ethnic group, as a community, what is in it for me? How can I thrive much better? How can I improve? How can I uh, get away from this inertia where um, kids grow fatherless, when we don't take advantage of all the potentials that this country can offer? Why should I turn like Cuba or Venezuela or something if we know that it doesn't work and many of their people that risk their life coming up here? So why should, should we go backward when we have to go forward? That is what the black people of this community have to say. Criticize what has to be criticized. Police brutality, let's go march. I'll be the first to join you. Actually, when Floyd was assassinated, he was assassinated, butchered like an animal, and that is not done to any human being, no matter how, how evil that human being it is. When he was assassinated by those uh, uh, crooked cops, everybody marched. At the, the first five days, white, um, Asian, uh, gay, lesbian, everybody was indignant. Oh, yeah. but then comes a string left, and who do they choose? the blacks. They didn't choose the Asians. Yeah. They didn't choose the Jewish. They chose the black, the most maneuverable and sensitive and easy to use as use kind of product. Because they play with their emotions. They play with our emotions. We have to get away from that. We have to start being rational. 
Remember, those black brothers that have made it in this country, and I can name you from Denzel Washington to Shaquille O'Neal, they use their brain. I don't care whether they're Demo Democrats or Republicans. I don't care. At this point, I'm not talking about politics. But they use their brain. They say, what's in it for me, for my family, for my community? Uh, do I choose to believe in God and, and do it openly? That's Denzel's view. And I admire him for that. Probably Shaq says, well, I'm into God, but not that much. I'm rather into going to school, improving. Every distinguished member of our community should follow and foster the path they think is best and influence the rest of the community with that. That is what we are for, to get a place at the table, not to kick the white guy out of the table, because that would only beget somebody trying to kick you out next time. And we're going to spend our lives kicking each other out of the table when there's enough space for everybody. And believe me, there's enough food and wine for everybody. So that, that's basically my grief with this organization. And that's why I never trusted it. I never will. And I will never trust anything that preaches division of Americans. Even Barack Obama who is my ideological enemy, but I, <laughs> yeah, he is. But I love this word. There's no white America, and I'm, and I'm quoting him. There's no black America. There's no white America. There is the United States of America. Whatever happened to the teachings of the, of the, of the prodigal son? Whatever happened? Now they don't trust Barack Obama anymore, or Barack Obama has changed is thinking. Somebody has to explain this to me. Well, what, what, 100%. And I will say this, um, from, from us, the Cuban community, even though I bring up, you know, the, the racial disparity that we go through as a people, I think, I always say this to my American friends, you guys should probably take notes from us because even though we go to like this, this please, you know, the one thing that keeps us together, we have one common enemy and that's communism. That so is correct. We could put that to the side. You don't even have to like me, but if we could get along for those couple of hours to have this discussion to get rid of that system, we could probably build a friendship out of that. And then after we build that friendship out of that, you know, it's going to be your call. You could not like me. You could like me. We go back to being enemies. But we'll keep us together as a flow. We have one current system. That's why every time I speak to a Cuban, I, I, I just met a Cuban person over the weekend. And the first thing I tell them once I found him from Cuba, what's your story? How'd you get over here? Because we know we didn't come over here for the American dream. We didn't come over here because we were feeling the crime from the community. We left the system or their parents left the system or their parents' parents left the system. So we every time we come over here, it's like a movie within itself. So I always make it a thing like, you know what? We might not, you know, they, they, we could, you know, we we as a people, we, we go through two things. We go through racism and we go through racism with the opposition, with the system that we hate. So we got to combat those two things. But we could level it down for a second and be like, all right, let's get along and let's build on something. Let's build on some kind of relationship. I think that if America could do that, it could be like in a better place, in a real better place, which which leads to my other thing. I've gotten flacked, you know, when the, you know, when the 2020 came around and everything was over, it was overly intense. And, you know, you have the riots, you have, you know, the election year, um, you know, Cubans were very we're very loud when it comes to our political views and we are known to vote a certain way. There's no secret. We vote Republican. Um, 
even with that, you know, even when you have Cuban um, Republicans and Cuban Democrats, we could put that aside for at least five seconds and get along because, you know, we have, again, a common enemy. Our issue is how we're going to get that enemy out of there. You know, they got one way and the other team has another way. But it was so funny when that came out, like where I lived at, I became like the Cuban representative on like why we're not getting in line and voting like, you know, the way the rest of Latin America does. Because I know we all voted for Trump or we we just vote Republican. There's no way to get around it. Um, I tried to explain to them, but because they didn't understand our system, you know, like I said, a lot of people left by choice. We didn't have a choice. They pretty much said, this is what it is. Get out. So can you explain to my audience what is it with Cubans that they always tend to vote like a certain way and what led to that? Because I was trying to do some study of that. And there was a point where Cubans did vote for um, Democrat during the 60s and 70s and things changed during the Reagan era. But can you explain to my audience what is it that we need to vote a certain way? Yeah, well, um, I am convinced that the powers that be, I'm not, I'm not saying Trump, Biden, Clinton, no, no. The, the powers that be, the real power, the establishment in the United States were decisive in putting Castro there. They wanted Batista out and they wanted Castro in. Um, by the way, this is 600 attempts on Castro's life. That's BS, total BS. Oh. Yes, there were attempts to kill him, but not 600. Mm, let me put it to you this way. When the powers that be in this country wanted to kill their own president, they killed them at 12 noon in front of everyone and nothing happened. So if, if the powers that be really wanted Castro, Castro would be dead ages ago. Let us not uh, sugarcoat or, um, how do I say, adulterate or, or mystify the figure of the Cuban security and intelligence. Yes, they are effective. Yes, Castro took advantage of that. But there were not 600 attempts. And there was never, probably one or two were, but there, most of the attempts that uh, took place were not even serious. Really, are you gonna use the mafia and somebody at a cafeteria to put poison in the fridge? Come on, man. If you wanna kill someone, you send a professional. Uh, okay, I don't wanna laugh, but uh, you mentioned how about when this country like killed their own, like I forgot, you had the Kennedy thing, you know, where they did it in broad daylight on camera. And then I remember Lincoln when he was watching his play, his theater. Yeah. So they'll remind you, it's like, it's kind of like an arrogant, like, look what the that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Don't make you think you're not special. We'll take you out also. Yeah, we'll so, take you out. If you go against and then, and then, like, Yeah. And, but anyway, um, Cubans uh, got here. Kennedy had done the Bay of Pigs. Uh, he betrayed us in the end, but there was rumor that Bobby Kennedy wanted to kill Castro. So, of course, they tended to be Democrat. Johnson had uh, uh, approved the Cuban Adjustment Act. So there was some certain uh, Cuban Adjustment Act, by the way, for those who don't know, is um, it's not even a law, but it's a precept, a legal precept that gives a certain edge to Cuban citizens uh, be uh, beyond and way beyond some other citizens from other countries. So it's like a privilege. 
And out of gratefulness, many of us Cubans uh, decided that, okay, let's vote for Johnson. And, but like you said, Nixon first, then Reagan, uh, we started to vote Republican. And also the tone and the rhetoric vis-a-vis -vis the Cuban junta was much more aggressive from the Republican side than from the Democrat side, even though, in all honesty, none of them want to do anything. It's all say they're playing with their feelings, they're playing with their sentiments, and Cubans have to learn to do their things on their own and not wait and ask for permission from anyone because it's not going to happen. Uh, mm, so then this position of being, remember Jimmy Carter, very soft on Cuba, very soft. Uh, then Obama, Clinton, and, mm -hmm. and the planes that were put down uh, brothers to the rescue, and he gave no order to protect them. So we, we feel even more betrayed by the Democrats than we feel by the Republicans. Can we throw, and can then, we throw, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but before I forget, can we also throw the whole Elian Gonzalez incident also to Elian Gonzalez, yeah. Elian yeah. Gonzalez, that was a child who got here. The mother was with him. His father knew all along they were coming to America. And the deal was that they were going to claim him later on when everything was legal. Then it all happened. Everybody died but Elian, who was a little child, who was a symbol of uh, the grace of God because he, he got here. He was the only one alive. And the Cuban government, Castro, with his, with his usual shrewdness, discovered that that was a topic that would earn him some points with the public opinion. So he launched a campaign to recover Elian. And of course, legally, the father, who evidently was pressured by the government, had the right to claim his son. Nobody denies that. We were thinking of other considerations, and we wanted the American government to see the entire issue into perspective. But uh, Clinton, uh, on the eve of uh, Good Friday, by the way, of all days, ordered the uh, marshals and the FBI to, um, to rush the place where the Leans was being uh, kept with his family, took the boy away, put him on a plane. The father was already here. So it was like a conspiracy, Clinton's conspiracy against the Cuban community. And uh, we can't we forget that. We can't forget that. Yeah, both parties are hypocrites, but the Democrats get too far. You only need to know a fifth of the Democratic um, Congress people are against a resolution against Cuba. And 80, almost half of the Democratic Congress people are against a declaration against socialism. That is alarming. That is alarming. And I'm not talking about AOC and the usual squad. The magpies, as I call them, las urracas. It's not, it's, no, 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 it's not the usual gang. We're talking about 80 people here. 80. So, of course, we Cubans are scared of the of a democratic president. Actually, we're seeing now Biden pampering Castro, giving them all, all they want in exchange for nothing. Nothing. And uh, it's, it's worrying.
of course, we are uh, legitimately we are concerned. So there, that is the basic reason why we vote Republican instead of Democrat. And then you get to people like me that are, as much as I was a communist back in the day, I'm an anti-communist now. It's a philosophical inclination. I am ideologically convinced of the evil of communism, socialism, whatever the hell you want to call it, yeah. and the the shortcomings and, and the intrinsic vices of the market economy, but it can be improved. At least you and I can talk here and say what we feel. Still. <laughs> I don't know about tomorrow. Still. Yeah. But but you can't do that in communism. And you can't eat in communism. And you can't have a car. And you can't travel freely. I mean, it, it's, it's a no-brainer. It is a no-brainer. America cannot go backward. You can't turn America into a Soviet Union. It has to go upward. Yes, there's so many things that must improve here. But I don't see the recipes from the left. What I see from the left is turning this into a concentration camp. And I don't agree with that. So that's why basically Cubans vote for Republicans. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll say this. Um, my mother will say it loud and proud and with no, with no shame. And it's so funny because we were like bumping heads when it came to politics because my whole family, they were all Democrats. They were all Democrats. They voted for Obama. They thought he was going to like kick ass and he was going to like put Cuba in his place. So then once she saw what happened and found out that he like, you know, lifted certain things, the drive, drive for wet foot, going to Cuba, playing the baseball games. He wouldn't speak to like the political prisoners, people, the activists, people that, you know, trying to free some change. And he suffered what it was. And then in the end, we also had the Cuban government played him. There's no way to get around it. They played him for a fool. And they pretty much turned him to his face. Our system is going to be, it's going to remain of what it is. And he basically told him, you're not going to do nothing to change it. And then the only thing that he said to try to like save face was like, you know what? The freedom is in Cuban people's hands. And that's the only thing he could say to like save himself from like, you know, doing that. But after that thing was done, my whole family left the party. I'm, I'm not, I was like the only one left. I'm still the only one left that um that that's still in that lonely boat. And think things might change. Things might probably change this year. You know, thanks that I live in a country where you know I could go left, I could go right, I could go independent. I don't even have to vote at all. I could just pay my taxes and keep it moving, make sure the IRS doesn't knock on my door. That's the beauty of of living in this country. And the one thing I got from my mom and everybody. You know, that comes from 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 who was like, you, you don't you don't want our problems, especially on a poverty level. You don't want our problems on a poverty level and you don't want our problems on a political level. So I'm, I'm, I'm very thankful, you know, and, you know, my parents left and they haven't came back. We're talking now like 40 years now, 40 plus years in, in counting. And I, I, I thank them for giving me that kind of integrity and that kind of discipline. That, you know, we're not leaving there till things change. And if I have to die not seeing my island, which crushes me. From her, that's from her own mouth and from my parents' mouth. If I have to lie, die and, you know, my, you know, I can't see my family, so be it, you know. So I, I, I'm I, definitely am for fighting that good fight. And I'm also, you know, just just very um in tune this time around because over the years that things have gone real, really, really low and I've been in awareness. One of the things that people have told me is like, you know, we don't know what's going on there because we're not, a, there's no way to get around it. Cuba is not in the world's radar, except if you're in Florida. 
we're not in nobody's radar. So somebody in Michigan won't know what's going on unless I tell them. Somebody in middle America, Idaho, Montana, we don't know. So I'm glad we I'm able to use this platform and you have your platform and we got this thing called social media and the internet. We could tell people every day, this is what's going on. This is the deal. And this is what we need to do with change. And just like, you know, if I see somebody in the street and I give them change, we need help. We need allies. We need people to help us bring awareness. And we need people to help us to get rid of that nasty regime that's been destroying us. And for the record, for the record, and I need you to press forward on this because one of the things that people get, they get loose talking points. So they all think it's the embargo. And it's not the embargo. It's the regime. Yeah. It is the regime. One more time, it's the regime. And um, whew, I mean, mic drop. Mike Drop, I mean, this is the best way, perfect way I could end this show, man. Um, Professor Albuquerque, thank you. This has been an honor and a privilege. Um, the universe does work in mysterious ways. You know, I didn't think I could get in contact with him, but I, I was optimistic more than ever. I'm like, I'm going to get this guy one way or another in the universe and the six degrees of separation. I, I got to thank my my connect. And um, it's a pleasure. Um, hopefully, I, I'll have you get on the show and we could give me more gems on this. Anytime. Um, give me till April because it's going to be Women's Month coming up. So I got to talk to all these women coming up. So I got to make sure I you keep bet. them happy. I keep them happy before they strangle me. So give, give me up till the end of March, um, end of March. And I will definitely, definitely, definitely um, have you on this show. Hell, I mean, if I could pull some strength, I would love you to have a speaking engagement here in Massachusetts. We could have to make it happen. And um, again, thank you. Um, and I believe I'll be doing your show coming up on Thursday. You are next uh, Thursday. Yeah. Yes. I'm, I'm gonna... before, before we part, as they say, actually. Yeah, I'm going to be there with my perfect English, so I can't wait till that Cuban audience comes after me. It doesn't matter. It doesn't it's matter. Gonna, it's gonna be, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you English, Spanish, and Spanglish. I'm going to give you three languages in one night. So we're going we're gonna to learn a couple of things here. But yes, yes, yes. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, this has been the combination with 102.9. I am your man, Cupid Mike. Um, once again, thank you, Andres Apugeke. Thank you for, you know, lending your voice. Thank you for your fight and your activism and just bringing awareness to the community. And, you know, we will, I'm feeling more optimistic more than ever. We will see your feet, Cuba, and that dictator will fall. Um, you know, guys, you catch me every Friday. Um, I'll catch y'all next time. Same tape deck time, same tape deck channel. And I'll see y'all. Love y'all and take care. Peace. The preceding commentary does not reflect the views of the staff and management of WBCA or the Boston Neighborhood Network. If you would like to express another opinion, you can address your comments to the Boston Neighborhood Network at 3025 Washington Street, Boston, Mass. 02119, attention WBCALP 102.9 FM. If you would like to arrange a time for your own commentary, call WBCA at 617 708 3241 or email us at radio at bnntv.org.